I'm just about to do a Comedy Central audition at the Ontario Improv. And I get an unknown phone call, which is two people, either a bill collector for my student loans I'm not paying on, or, or my dad in prison. There's only two people that call me on an unknown number. So I answer it, it's my dad, and he goes, Brian, I just want to call you real quick. Uh, I just want to call and tell you that I think your mom pissed off the warden here in Oregon. And so they're transferring me and I don't know where it's going to be and I don't know how long it's going to take. So if you don't hear from me for a long time, just tell your mom that I'm being transferred and I won't know anything until I get to some prison that I'm going to be at for a while. Okay, good luck, buddy. I got to (laughs) go. He just hangs up. Hello. You know what time it is. Hot breath. Welcome back, all my hot brethren and sistren. This is, of course, your favorite host, Joel Byers. And this is another fantastic, hilarious, hot breath-isode. Yes, 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 welcome. If this is your first time listening, welcome aboard. I hope you have fun here on this episode with our very special guest. This guy, you may... Some know him as a co-host of one of the nation's top morning radio shows. Others may know him as a comedian. Others may know him just because you know him. No matter how you found this episode or found our guest today, you will not be disappointed because today we are interviewing Brian Moot, everybody. Yeah, give it up for Brian Moot, hopping on hot breath. This is a very fun episode Covering everything from how Brian had a quick rise through the radio game to how he balances life with comedy and family and just anybody who's a fan of Brian is going to love this interview. Anybody who's a fan of comedy is going to love this episode. Anybody who is a fan of learning is going to love this episode. That's what it's all about here. So thank you for taking the time out of your busy day or night or morning, however you found it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you enjoy it and want to support the podcast, quickly leaving an iTunes review definitely makes a difference. I read all of them live on the air here. If you want to support me, maybe see me live. I host a show every Wednesday at Java Monkey in Decatur. You can go to my website for more info on my scheduling. I also teach a comedy class, which I just had a dope new logo made by Brian Taylor from Comedy Artwork. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know Brian has done pretty much everything for me, from my class logo to my podcast logo to my website logo. He's done everything. So if you want to hit him up, comedyartwork.com or at comedyartwork on all social media. He's my favorite artist out there, and I think if you check him out, he'll be yours too. So hit him up, tell him to give you the hot breath special, and uh, you know, get a new image going of yourself. Invest in yourself in 2017. But I appreciate you investing in your time here as our episodes have now reached in the 70s. So if you enjoy this one, please go back to our catalog. Listen to all the amazing ones we have in the history and in the future of Hot Breath. But I digress. It's time. So, you know... There's only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath with Brian Moot. I have nothing in my fridge right now. Zero. I have hummus. (laughs) 
Just tip of the cap to you there. In case you get hungry for a processed child's lunch. Does he eat Lunchables? Uh, I do eat a lot of Lunchables. It's funny. Very nice. Oh, the birds are going to fucking be loud. They're not that loud. It's all right. Start squawking because it makes it sound like we're in a nice little park. Yeah, we'll just tell people there's parakeets because you're a grown man with parakeets. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's all right. It'll be nice texture. (laughs) Cool. I think we're good. Yeah. Well, we're good anyway, but it's going to be great. Should we pick up the birds? What are the birds' names? Doris and Bruno. Doris and Bruno. Yeah. All right. Yep. Uh, and Bruno is far nicer than Doris. Doris is like the biggest snatch ever. Like just, I don't think I've ever had her out of the cage. She just pecks your hands. They they have a remarkable beak strength. They like latch onto <laughs> your parakeets. finger. Yeah, they latch onto your fingers. And then uh, sometimes you have this moment of panic where like, I think it's going to break the skin or I don't know how to get it off. Like it's not like a... Uh-huh. You know when someone says like uh, you punch a dog in, in like the jaw or something, it'll like you can't just like what do you flick a bird like? Oh, they're so fragile. Might kill it and messy too. So that's good. Oh, they're they are way messier than I ever thought. It's not like they're bad roommates. Well, you can't snuggle with them. I don't know why birds are not my favorite. <laughs> this is the wife's favorite, I guess. Yeah, she yeah. loves birds. They they represent freedom and like free spirits and the ability to go where you want. And uh, so she wanted to get birds and then she <laughs> then she went to New York without them. So now she's up there. She left me with the birds. <laughs> and you had a dog, Moxie. Yeah, I got a dog, Moxie. She's a little wild chihuahua. She's in L.A. And then we have a shih tzu named Norman. So we pretty much when we have all the animals here, it's like Dr. Doolittle's house uh-huh. in a one bedroom apartment with too many creatures, too many oh, heartbeats in one apartment. <laughs> so that's what you move to Atlanta and then you chasing these dreams and then you end up with just parakeets in an apartment yeah that's <laughs> silently in an apartment how has atlanta been for you man uh, i like it it's different yeah. it really i know uh especially like in buckhead this area it is like a mall decided to be a town what is going on here is that oh is that, is that a, an amber uh, alert oh it is an amber alert that's funny is that funny somebody's missing well i don't know if that's funny but i'm always i guess it's not funny at all hopefully we find them uh or the tornado warnings or something i guess they're never funny they're never funny i don't know why i just said that because i was trying to re- regather my thoughts no about atlanta sorry. no you're good <laughs> that's funny though. that's actually funny saying an amber alert is funny when it's not funny at all it's hilarious uh i like atlanta it's different it's it's like a huge small town Mm-hmm. It's like the biggest small town I've ever lived in. I mean, I've lived in L.A., lived in New York briefly, um, Seattle, Boston. And Atlanta just seems like a huge suburb once you get outside uh-huh. the city. And then you talk to people who they never, they're like, oh, my God, I've never even, I rarely go into Atlanta. And I'm like, I, and then some people are like, I rarely leave. So <laughs> it's like these people are just all, like they talk about the outside the perimeter like it's a wall, like Game of Thrones. Definitely. Like north of the wall. Like, yeah, don't go out definitely. there, man. Yeah. White Walkers. <laughs> Is it everything you had hoped it would be? Because Atlanta, were, were you doing like talk radio? W- I was before you moved to my the radio. Show? My radio journey is a little is way different than anyone than most. I wouldn't say anyone else because there's a lot of comics that get into radio, mainly serious, and that's all out of New York. Mm. You know, Opie and Anthony guys, yeah. Jim Norton and and the like. But um, 
So I was just doing stand-up in L.A., um, trying, auditioning for whatever, like any little thing, you know, <laughs> any hosting gig, VH1, MTV, uh, pilot season was always a crippling defeat every year. And then playing colleges and clubs and things like that. And I was on the road in Seattle and I was doing a corporate show for Boeing and my friend who very much similar to the situation I'm in in Atlanta where uh, to like the, the, the number one show. There's like a split and one of the hosts leaves. Right. But I was on the other side of it where I was um, like my friend was leaving the show. She got her own show in the city and she couldn't she couldn't find anybody that she worked with. Well, and so she called me and was like, I know you're in town and, and you've done radio on the road and things. Would you just sit in and just try to make two voices sound better? Because a two voice show is difficult for two people to do a radio show without that third person in there to add like energy and maybe some more laughter, uh-huh. uh, it can be a little bit awkward. Cause when two people are having conversation, if one person's laughing at everything, you're just like kind of uncomfortable <laughs> to sit around, you know? <laughs> so I sat in on that and then <clears throat> with like really no thoughts of doing radio. This is like four years ago. And, um, the program director called me and was like, would you be like, are you even interested in radio or is this just something you were doing? Cause you were helping out your friend Jackie. And I was like, yeah, I never thought about it. Sure. So they flew me up again from LA Wow. I auditioned with another uh, another guy and her. And then a week later, they offered me a contract. And it was probably the funniest thing that's ever happened to me in terms of getting a job because a uh, guy calls me up and he goes, hey, man, we really want you to do this show. What we can offer you? He goes, 65000 And I was just being super quiet, right? <laughs> and he goes, I'm sorry, man. Is that like a slap in the face? I have no idea what you make as a comedian. Wow. And I was like... I was like, I was in silence. I was like, you mean $65,000 guaranteed to me and health insurance? Are you kidding? Like at the time I was in LA, I lived in a two bedroom apartment with three dudes. So we built a room in the living room out of sheet walls, like sheets. Like I hung sheets up there. It was like a, like a Roman battlefield tent or something. Wow. You have to go through like the slit on oh. the one end to get into my room. <laughs> and and I, I was right by the couches and stuff. So it's kind of funny, like if, if you would have asked me at like eight years old what my dream would be, I'd be like, I'm going to live in a, my, my friend's living room and I'll play video games with them. And she's like, you can't do that, Brian. I'm like, yeah, I can. I did it until I was 31 years old. So so I was like, I was quiet. And then I, that's why, I, of course, I accepted that offer because um, Seattle and L.A. And I did this a fair amount, bounced back and forth, like tried to get up at the improv and Laugh Factory and um, try to get back and forth as much as I could. And then Seattle's a great stand up town. So mm. You know, trying to get up every night there and doing the show. And then about a year into that show, they re-signed me for another two years and then promptly fired everybody at the entire station. So they gave me like a chunk of money to go away. And I started doing talk radio on a news format, which was fun. I hosted the weekend show and then I was the fill-in guy on all their big shows. Wow. It's an interesting thing because I'm a liberal comedian, former special ed teacher, uh, and now I'm on these, this huge platform of conservative talk, news talk radio, just <laughs> taking absolute fire on the text board. Just every day. Hey, you libtard. Like, just, wow. I, would, I, I would read the insults. I thought it was funny. On the air? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, as long funny. as they didn't, you know, as clean as they could be. Right, right, right. right. Insinuate what, what the words were. Um, but I learned a lot about talk radio in that format because um, the guys that I worked with, were, you know, legends in Seattle on this huge station with this huge signal. Um, and then I was 
I went to a morning radio show boot camp and I won an award, which is right there. It's a glass award for being a rising star in morning radio. Yeah, finally got the trophy sent to me. I never got it at the event or at the at the uh, whatever it is, the uh, the convention, because I didn't I skipped the awards banquet. Oh. Because I didn't think I'm, I'm like I'm not gonna get an award. Why the hell would I go there? Right. And I ran into the uh, convention coordinator. He's like, "Hey man, where were you last night? We were calling your name at this dinner." I'm like, "Well, <laughs> no one told me." And he's like, "We uh, we sent an email to you." And I was like, "Definitely spam got that." Spam was like, "You ain't winning nothing, man." So, and he's like, "Why wouldn't you go?" I'm like, "Cause I don't go to conventions with like an extra bag for my hardware. You know what I mean? That I'm gonna bring home." Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's funny because when I did that whole interaction happened in front of a radio consultant who works with the Burt show. So it's kind of like this kind of weird path of just randomness that ended up leading me to Atlanta. So then this radio consultant got me with an agent. Then that last was about a year ago. Now when I started coming out here for the first time, like secretly um, oh, okay. after Jeff left the show. So I was in, um, I, I went to Toronto to interview for a show. Uh, and then I was in DC and I got an email from the radio consultant. He's like, hey, uh, are you, I don't know if you're interested, but the Burt Show is looking for somebody. And I was like, of course, like that show is legendary. I'm like a fan of that show. But mm-hmm. I listen every once in a while because people reference them as this different show for Top 40, which is way more personality, way more talk. No, you know, no shenanigans, no like. Here's the goofy phone tap Seriously, at 7.10. Horns and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, we're giving away concert tickets. I mean, I don't even know if we are ever. I don't know. Like, I know we do give away tickets, but it's like, no, like we're not doing it usually. It's usually yeah. just like text to win or something. So the big no, leagues. Come pick them up. Yeah, we just don't. And that's just a different way to do radio. It's super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I flew straight from DC back to Seattle to do my weekend shift. And then I flew out here and then... Uh, met the whole crew, um, then flew back to LA, then flew back out here again and kind of like sat in on a panel, kind of a secret panel. Um, and then, yeah, and then decided to come out here in December of last year, flew out, then went to London with my wife. We, and we grabbed basically the first apartment we could find, which is the one we're in. Mm -hmm. Um, we had like, we had, 36 hours to find an apartment before our flight left for London. So, yeah. Um, and it, so it was kind of like this crazy, just completely random path to come out here. Cause I'd never met anybody in radio in Atlanta. Um, cause I've only been in radio for three and a half. Yeah. Four I years. didn't realize it was that fast. Yeah. Um, I think the difference is, I think the reason is because, you know, I could, I don't come from radio. I come from, you know, special ed comedy, like just a different path where I really love the opportunity to get up in the morning and just goof around. Like it's a silly job. Mm-hmm. It's a really silly job. And every time I'm tired in the morning, you know, I do stand up a lot. So every time I'm tired in the morning, I always remind myself if, if the hours of your job are the worst part of it, like you're doing all right. Because yeah. I've worked jobs where the hours are awful. And then also like the job is awful, you know, like stacking cement bags at Home Depot and stuff. It's just hard work. Um, so, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I kind of rose in radio pretty fast, but that's just right place, right time completely, which is like most showbiz things happen as long as you take advantage of the opportunity that's in front of you. Um, and, you know, the, there's always a, a, a way to derail yourself. Like Seattle, I, first show I was on, I could have just not taken it serious, not learned. I was really hungry to learn every single thing in the studio because I hate 
I hated the idea that I was just going to be a like a goofy comedian hanging out in a studio. I wanted like I wanted the respect of knowing how to run the board, mm-hmm. how to use uh, all the audio equipment, how to produce a show. So you know, I learned learned all the technology uh, involved in ISDN, all those things. And I even hosted the Saturday morning music show. <laughs> like the first two hours were always just cr- like a crippling hangover. And, like, <laughs> words aren't coming out right. Um, and I remember that I used to just drop all the imaging, which is completely against the rules. I just drop all of the promo imaging because I wanted to talk. Oh, over ads and stuff? Uh, well, I wouldn't drop the ads. Oh, I just okay. drop like, you know, when they... Uh, You'll, it'll, it'll be like a Q100, like, uh-huh. like though this summer we're doing, I just be like, nope, <laughs> be like, <laughs> just, I'm just going to try to tell a funny thing in like 18 seconds. <laughs> and because I figured, why am I in here if I'm not learning how to yeah. talk over the ramps of songs, you know, hit the tr- post, right? right? Yeah. 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 Radio terminology. Hey, look out. Which now. is like a lot more difficult than people think it is. Yeah. And this, I always used to wonder how radio guys, radio folks did that. I mean, there's a screen and you can and see the countdown. when it's, yeah, you can see yeah. when it's coming. But I always used to be marvel at like how well they, the guy would stop talking and then it would be, you know, some Nickelback song or whatever was on. How do you balance it though? Because you do a morning radio show where there is, you know, I mean, you've got to show up for it. Yeah. A lot of people are listening to this and then you do stand up at night, but then uh-huh. you have a wife in New York, who's also like a reality star Mm -hmm. in like the UK specifically, I guess more than here, but I mean, still very well known. So like, how do you balance this whole whirlwind? Well, a lot of, uh, organization, I guess it sounds so, I mean, I'm not a very organized person, but I mean, the, the personal life stuff is all just booking airfare, um, and coordinating that, um, with her and with my schedule, it's been a little bit more difficult than I thought it would be because of all the travel we do to the outside markets now. So, mm. you know, I go to Dallas once a month. I have two weekends at clubs in Dallas to headline in 2017 in Dallas and then one in Plano in the Dallas area. Um, and we're trying to get out to those markets more and more, or at least I am because I'm the newest guy on the show. So it helps to go to these different cities. Right. Um, in terms of the uh, doing stand-up and the radio show during the week, I've had to make an effort to talk myself out of having to do stand-up every night because for the longest time, I mean, when I was in graduate school in Boston and I was, I was doing three shows a night always, like yeah. everywhere, coffee shops, clubs, and there's a lot of rooms in Boston. And I was also in graduate school, so I guess that kind of helps a little bit, but I was getting a social work degree, so I didn't really have to do anything. I just kind of show up and be like, yeah. For a master's though, right? Yeah, but it's still, a master's, if if you have a social, some social work people take it a lot more serious. I was just like, let me get through with it. Like, let me get through this. I wasn't a big, I knew, I knew a year into my my master's degree that I was going to be doing comedy full time. I started to book some colleges and I was starting to get club work headlining, so I just kind of was like, this is... I'm not, I don't want to be a social worker right now, but I wanted to finish because I knew if I didn't finish, I'd never finish. There's no way you go back to that. Um, you still had a passion for it. Did yeah. you work on policy and stuff yeah, up there yeah. as well? Yeah, I uh, helped work on the first gay marriage bill in Boston mm-hmm. um, when I worked at the uh, state house. Um, I worked for various homeless shelters and youth at-risk youth organizations, and I worked for a lobbyist for a little while. So I appreciate all those things. They make you like a well-rounded person. And, you know, you can add some material to it. It gives you a little perspective. Um, but I knew that, you know, my involvement in social worker now is is just fundraising. 
like just shows, fundraising shows. I mean, I do a weekly show at the punchline. Um, <clears throat> that it's super fun starting to build a little bit of an audience, but you know, building a show takes time. Um, but I've had to consciously say to myself, like, you got to take a couple days during the week and not go out and do stand up. Mm-hmm. And usually for me, it's Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday, Thursday, I can usually power through in the mornings. And then it just depends on what we have. But the, the show, the Burt show is a lot more demanding because of the amount of talk time. There's so much real estate on air and there's so much, uh, and it's great for a comic because that's what you want. You want to talk. The first show I was on, I played like eight or nine songs an hour. Sometimes I don't even get to talk for the first 90 seconds of the break because our lead host has to set it up, tease what's coming up later, throw to our reactionary person, you know, Jackie. And then it was me and I'd come thundering in with some <laughs> like completely off color, you know, rant about something or tirade, which was fun. But then there's no like there's no rebuttal. There's no conversation. It's just like nine, you know, it's a three minute break. Right. Uh, which is always, you know, difficult. So but the thing that made it easy was in Seattle, I could go out and do stand up every night because our show started at like six ten, six fifteen because we were like pre-taped and playing music for the first 12 minutes. And then, and then I'd be sitting in the studio just kind of like screwing around with Twitter for 12 minutes at a time, 15 minutes at a time, maybe 20 minutes sometimes, and then come in with a three-minute break. So because it wasn't that difficult, I, I could do stand-up every single night. And I lived like a block, a half, block and a half from the comedy club in downtown Seattle. But this, the Burt Show, there's so much... I don't want to say pressure because it's not pressure. It's pressure you put on yourself to be good, right? Um, and to be sharp and awake, and that's the biggest problem. If you go, if you show in tired, show up tired, um, and you can't f- formulate words or function, yeah, like people can tell immediately. It's interesting to see your your kind of path into this, and you're in entertainment and on TV and radio, but you grew up without like either. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean. I didn't um, I didn't see stand up comedy at, uh, until I was a junior in college because we didn't have cable. We had we got like Canadian television. So I, I grew up on an island, Whidbey Island, you tell people who are listening. Uh, and it's 45 minutes north of Seattle. And we I mean, I listened to radio a little bit, but it was always country. because That's what my parents listened to. Mm-hmm. My mom listened to Gaelic harp music. Like she loves, she's Irish and she just loves, she loves harps. So it's like when she was rocking the stereo, it was like, oh my God, this is just like some, every song sounds the same to me. Does she have a harp? Yeah, she had a harp. She played the, she's pretty musical, talented, Uh like a artist. Um, And then, yeah, so I, we didn't have cable. I remember I saw them trying to, like they were trenching cable in the neighborhood. When I say neighborhood, it's very loose. It's like, you know, the nearest house is like four or five miles well, not that far, probably like a mile apart. Oh, okay. So it's very rural and woodsy. And we were way down the end of this road. And I saw him trenching cable like on the main road when I was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. And I got so excited. I just, <laughs> I saw like freedom coming our way <laughs> because I wanted to watch MTV. Like that was what we do when we went to my aunt's house in Seattle is we'd all be sitting there like taking in as much MTV as we could because <laughs> you didn't know like, Oh my God, real world this is so crazy. We just sit there. My parents would get so mad. They're like, right. Hey, we're not in Seattle for you guys to watch TV. And I look at them like, but we need to take this in. We're like loading up on it right now. So we don't, we don't freak out next week when we're back home where the reality TV is just farm animals. 
Right, exactly. Right. We just stare at the and then my mom would my mom would just say, Go outside. She would just say, Go outside and do something. So we just go outside and try to try to build a fort. <laughs> or we had a little motorcycle, we'd ride it around, but not a whole lot to do. Probably just get in trouble, I guess. Oh yeah. A lot of uh bonfire parties, breaking things, blowing things up. Um a <laughs> lot of like petty vandalism, because when you're at <laughs> You don't know, and I don't even know. It'd be vandalism. No one notices. It'd be like you're driving down the road and you just launch a pumpkin like out the top of the car as right. fast as you're, you know, going 80 miles an hour, and then you go back just to see how bad it's splattered. <laughs> it's like such a dumb thing to do. We did, we did a lot of skateboarding too, just at this like, oh. but not cool skateboarding because there's no park or anything. We were just right. trying to jump stairs and trying to break our ankles and you know screw up my parents health insurance yeah you being tall doesn't help with skateboarding no, either no not at all yeah. or snowboarding or any of those things it's like that was i always wanted to be like a professional snowboarder but i realized quickly like the center of my center of gravity was yeah. a little bit off for those flip tricks so. you just settled for a quarterback star i guess i try well i mean star but the school our school is so small that like i played every position my like i played <laughs> My senior year, I played uh, as quarterback, kicker, punter, and defensive end. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I had to be a star because I played the entire season in every position. Were you prom king or anything like that? No, I wasn't. We ah. had, um, I wasn't prom or uh, I wasn't homecoming court either because I skipped the assembly and when they, and when they announced it. Like uh, someone finally built a half pipe for skateboarding. So they announced my name and I wasn't there, but I was... But I was present, like I was supposed to be there. So mm-hmm. they flat out just like they replaced me. Well, how, how small are we talking here of a town and high school? Uh, the high school had 550 kids. And the town, Whidbey Island South End, where I lived, is a collection of four little towns. Langley, Freeland, Clinton, and uh, Bayview. And they're all just kind of, you know, the school is like 12 miles from my house. Um, so you take a little while to get there in the morning. So yeah. it's just kids from all over this little, some are living in the town, some live out in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, everyone knows everybody. Everyone talks about everybody. Um, and then our, so I didn't get on homecoming court and our football coach during the, uh, the halftime, we were getting blown out like 45 to nothing. Oh yeah. Cause our homecoming game of course is against <laughs> like the state, the, the soon to be state champions were coming here and just, just destroying us. Mm-hmm. And we were getting just blown out. And this football coach comes in. He's like, you know, this is the first time in the history of my coaching here, which is 35 years, that the starting quarterback wasn't even nominated for the homecoming court. And I was like, coach, I was nominated. But then he's like, shut up. And I was like, can we talk about the game, man? Like, you're railing, you're ranting and raving about the, about the homecoming court uh-huh. and uh, the people out there. And you're mad that I'm even in the locker room. We're getting blown out 45 nothing. Like, whatever. He's like, I think he just wanted to yell, like, there's nothing we can do. This team's going to crush us. Let's right. not lose by triple digits. <laughs> Let's put a point on the board. So you guys weren't very good. No, we, were, we weren't good at all. With that whole... <laughs> the problem is, is that when you grow up in a town like that, all of just... There's no incentive to play sports. So then all the people that are good at sports in middle school, like, just start smoking weed and, like, mm-hmm. drinking and skateboarding and snowboarding because that's way more popular in those small towns up there. Riding dirt bikes. And you just don't want to get yelled at by these old school coaches. So most of my friends that were athletes just quit. And the only reason I really stuck with it is because I wanted to play basketball. Which you and, did? Yeah. In college? Went to college and played basketball at, at a small school, um, which was uh, an experience uh, for sure. 
just because you realize like how <laughs> when you grow up in a small town, you're like your league is small, you dominate people, and then you go to college and you're like, these people are fast. Right. <laughs> like, they're fast, they're really strong. This is not as much fun. The only reason I liked it is because the guys I played with were all just I don't know, just disasters, but fun, like just fun idiots. So, and the school wasn't far from LA, right? No, it wasn't far. I almost started stand up in college. Um, after I saw, so my first comedy show I ever saw in my entire life was Dave Chappelle, um, headlining the Ontario improv and his opener was Nick Cannon who wow. ate it harder than I've ever seen someone <laughs> bomb in my entire life was the hardest I've ever seen. It was so depressing I mean, it wasn't, I don't know if it was his fault. I've never seen him do stand-up since. Um, he does have an obnoxious personality on stage mm -hmm. and maybe in real life, I don't know. But uh, that was at the height of Dave Chappelle's Chappelle show. Oh my gosh. Success was like 2003, 2004. So, I mean, the place was just packed. Everyone was just screaming, yeah, like little John quotes. And like, just so, I don't know if any opening act would have been able to do much. Mm -hmm. I know that Sherrod Small was the host and he, I remember him doing great, but then again, he was also on the Chappelle show as Ashy Larry. So. Oh, Donnell Rawlings? Yeah, Donnell Rawlings. Sorry. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, Sherrod. Uh, I think it's Sherrod. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, Donnell Rawlings. So he emceed the show, mm -hmm. but he was also a character on the show. On, right. Like, that does so help. he could, you know, but people knew who Nick Cannon was. I just, I, to this day, I don't think I've ever seen someone eat it and like I've been booed before and Ooh. I've never seen someone eat it like that ever. How, when did you get booed? I got booed and this is a bad gig. It was awful. It was uh, in Boston. I was, this guy called me up and I, I say yes to everything, like literally every show. And sometimes I'll get there and I'll be like, should I said no to this one? <laughs> like I, a lot of nonprofit stuff I should say no to like, but I have kind of a soft spot for nonprofits. So, right. and I, I always know it means something to them. It means more to them to have me come out than it does even to me to go. But the kind where there's no microphone and it's just like you get out there and you're like, oh, and it's daytime outdoors, like at a pat on a patio function or something. And you just sit there going like, man, I probably should have just been like, nah, I'm good on this one. I had one recently uh, and it, it went well, but only because. I broke the zipper on my jeans right before it happened. So my fly was like wide open. Perfect. Yeah. It was at the red brick brewery, um, like in West Midtown. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was for the, Oh, I can't remember the name of the organization. Um, it's an organization that works with the siblings, a support group for the siblings of kids with developmental disabilities kind of helps the siblings supports them throughout their, their life just to network them with other siblings of people with disabilities. And I'm in the bathroom right before I'm about to go up and do stand up in front of like 30 people on the, on the patio, mm -hmm. no microphone <laughs> and just zipper snaps. And I, I, I can't say like, I have to acknowledge it. No one's got a safety pin. Of course. Right. Like there's 30 women at this thing and miraculously, none of them had anything in their purse to help me with this problem. So I like, I I'm like, just, all right, well, I'm just going to have to be tell the story about how I broke my stupid fly. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had a moment where, when I was walking up where I was like, man, you broke your fly. It's outdoors. There's no microphone. <laughs> it's like six o'clock on a Thursday. Why don't you just say no to things? Just say no. Yeah. That's all you have to do is say no. So in Boston, uh, this guy calls me up or sends me an email and he's like, uh, he's a booker at this club called the Roxy. That's red flag one. Don't ever perform at a place called the Roxy. Like every place that's the Roxy, there's way too much, uh, like, 
date rape drugs are rampant in the crowd. Like, it's grungy. You know, yeah, they're, they're, and they're booking here. Yeah, they're booking music acts. Uh-huh. And so this was a reggaeton uh, concert with like three reggaeton bands. And they were all like typical, if you could imagine a Boston reggaeton band, it's all like Boston y guys, white dudes with Irish. dreadlocks. Yeah. <laughs> with dreadlocks and they're just like as long as we grow the Rasta hair, we're good on the reggaeton. Uh-huh. And uh so I go up and it, I I was gonna go up between the bands while they reset and I was gonna do like 30 minutes between each band. And on paper it sounded like great, great idea. I mean I I didn't end up doing I was gonna do three sets of 30 minutes. Um, cause I just was like, sure, why not do 90 minutes of, I hope right. every joke I've ever written works because that's right. what I'm going to be doing. Um, <laughs> how so far in your career was this? This is like four or five years in Okay, where I would just, I mean, I would literally put myself way in over my head at a lot of places. Sound, this is one of them. It yeah. Like. And so, uh, I, I, I get into the first, like I start the reggaeton band is like pack and they're packing up behind me, the one group. So oh. it's like. That's happening and uh-huh. no one's listening and it's like I'm yelling <laughs> over the top and all of a sudden some guy just starts booing me. He's like, boo, <laughs> boo. And then some other guys start booing me and then I'm like like heckling me and he's heckling me in like a thick Middle Eastern accent. And uh-huh. this is like six minutes into a 30 minute set <laughs> and I was stubbornly just committed to like I'm doing all 30 minutes because I don't want to give this guy, this booker, a, a reason not to pay me because... Like if I, if I come up short, even though I'm getting booed and I was making some people laugh because the guys booing me were doing it to irritate me. Right. Mm -hmm. Booey boo. And I kept going, kept plowing through and I was making uh, fun of the fact that I was counting down on my watch, how much time I had left and I was doing crowd work Mm -hmm. and I was just being obnoxious. And then this guy starts heckling me like in the thickest Middle Eastern accent ever. And he looks a little Middle Eastern. And so I'm trying to think what year this was. It was like. 2008 and I'm a comedian on stage and there's like a lot of, I mean, we're, we have like the, the, um, we're like hunting bin Laden as a country. Uh-huh. And so they're like, this is like weird and I'm a social worker. So I have, I'm like walking this fine line of like <laughs> trying to be engaged in heckler comedian battle without sounding racist, saying something, you know, like Islamophobic and just, and this guy's burying me, like burying me because I'm running out of things to say. I don't know what to, and he's just like brilliantly heckling me. And so then after that first set is done, I'm like, whew, get off stage. And I, I walk over. And of course he comes up to me because that's what hecklers do yeah. when they think that they helped the show. Right. Like, oh, help the show, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your buddy, he comes up to me and of and I'm like, ah, oh, man, but I, I better be like cool with this guy because I don't like leaving a show, even if you have a bad interaction with somebody. And have them feel like like I cared or that I was mad about it. I mean, I got mad in a second because he comes up to me. This dude doesn't even have a Middle Eastern accent. He's just a white dude or like a like an Italian guy. Yeah. Like he was tan enough to sell it. <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> like what ethnicity he was, but he uh-huh. definitely was not Middle Eastern at all. And he just he's like, I was like, you're not Middle Eastern. He's like, no, nah, I thought it'd be super funny if I heckled you in an accent because accents are funny. <laughs> I'm like this dude just used every hacky comedian's playbook against them. So I kind of think it's brilliant. And I wish he would do that to comics who are like 90 percent. Hey, my parents sound like this. And then right, do some right. wacky accent that their parents have. Is he the only one that booed? No, no, no. A ton of people were booing. Oh, OK. He was the only one that was like, yelling. OK. And then he would say something and and. 
I and he'd get big cheers and then I would say something and everyone would boo and as they're laughing <laughs> booing me and I'm just and I'm like uh, so then he goes uh, comes with this one I'm like oh yeah yeah so that's not your real accent oh he's like yeah man I thought it'd be funny because what are you gonna say back to me if I have a Middle Eastern accent <laughs> like laughing and I'm like man I want to hate you but that's a brilliant move then he goes yeah man well I'm actually thinking about doing comedy and I was like Ugh. yeah man go Right. Go do that. I'm glad you just workshopped your new, your first character exactly here yeah. in the crowd on me. <laughs> and then I the Booker comes up to me and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. That was real. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, I think you know what, man. I think we're just gonna be good with uh, house music for the next two sets." Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, "Okay, cool." And he goes, "And I'm uh, I'll, I'll mail you a check. I'll, how about that? I'll mail it to you because I don't have an on me right now." And I'm like, "You're not mailing me a check, man." And he's like, "No, no, no. I'm gonna mail it to you." I was like. No, you could not. You could just tell me right now that you just thought it was so awful that you're not going to pay me. I'd rather have you do that than just not. Than just no, no. I promise, I'm going to mail it to you. I'm like, God, never mailed me a check. Of course, so. you should have gone up there as Elmer Frickles, I guess. Oh, dude, yeah, <laughs> my my old character, karaoke character. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that's I always ask people on here about getting booed, and I'm glad. Oh yeah, it's an interesting experience. We all it's fail, like, yeah. Um, because I think most of the time it happens. If you ever watch a video, like Bill Burr has the famous. Um, getting booed on stage when mm-hmm. you know uh, on the Open Anthony tour. Um, after a while, booze don't booze are because the crowd is wanting to aggravate you because it's funny to them. Yeah. So it's like a big, it's almost like a big brother got you, you know, and you're being teased. Mm-hmm. That and because I could see their faces and they're laughing as they're booing me, but it's not like you know, like, like you're at a political rally and someone's like boo because they don't like your <laughs> opinions. They're booing you because they want to see you scream and snap and like you know be hostile and yell at them and yeah. call them names and stuff it's a weird phenomenon are the parents supportive of the whole uh the comedy transition um they weren't at first i don't think i think they thought it was just like a silly fun thing i'd do when i was in seattle to make a little money mm-hmm. or it wasn't until i was headlining a comedy club in seattle on new year's eve like 2012 i just just moved to la I just did um, a prank show on MTV called Money from Strangers with my friend, hosted by my friend Jeff Dye. And I was a cast member on that. And I was headlining New Year's Eve and just had a show that just, I just destroyed. And my parents were there. My mom brought a bunch of her friends from Seattle. So it was a big deal for her to come out. And it was, um, and New Year's Eve is always kind of like one of those benchmark nights for comedians where, like you're headlining New Year's Eve, that's always going to be a big night for the club. Right. So it's it's like you look at those weekends when you're young, when you're younger as a comic, like whoa, I'm doing New Year's Eve. All right, you know, kind of made it. There we go. That's a big night. Like, mm-hmm. um, and she was like, "Don't ever do anything else. Like you're meant to be a comedian." She said that to me, and then she's also said to me later, she's like, "You're funnier when you're drunk." <laughs> she's, she's like, I don't want to tell you this, but I find you funnier when you've had a few drinks. Wow. And this is coming from a lady who says booze of the devil. My mom? Yeah. Well, she's, I mean, nah, she drinks a little bit here and there. Oh, okay. She's not, she's a hippie. I, I think she would prefer weed probably if she had a choice, <laughs> if you had put her on the spot and uh-huh. asked her. But what about uh, dad? Uh, my dad, my dad's always loved comedy, but he, uh, yeah, he's always, he loves storytelling. Um, uh, he loves it when I make fun of him. My brothers and I always make fun, like just goof around with him. And uh-huh. so he's always been supportive. Um, he would go to my open mics early on in comedy. Um, but he's got a little bit of the, uh, obnoxious accidental heckler in him, like mm. a little bit, like, 
I had to lecture him a couple times early on on like the don't answer your cell phone in the comedy club. Like don't, <laughs> right. don't um, like when someone's bombing, don't say, oh, he said something to this one comic. I think it broke her heart. Yeah. She said something like, oh, you guys, you guys didn't like that one. And he's like, I'd like it if you were funny. Like all, all obnoxious. Like <laughs> he's like, I got her right guys. And they're mm-hmm. like, that's not how comedy works. You're not right. allowed to yeah. like, you don't get anybody. There's no scoreboard in here. Um, but he's always been supportive of it. Was he at the New Year's show? Uh, yeah, yeah. He was there too. Okay, cool. Yeah. So was my grandmother who, um, she passed away two years ago, but she was there and just right before she kind of, she developed Parkinson's after that. So she couldn't really go out to places, but her hearing wasn't very good. Mm -hmm. And she was, uh, so my mom brought her to the early show and she couldn't hear anything. Like she could not hear what I was saying. And she heckled me hilariously where I said something and my grandma goes, is he talking about me? Like all loud. And my mom was, and I go, oh, that's great. My grandma's heckling me. And she goes, she goes, are you talking about me? And I'm like, no. And, I'm wow. like, and then people were like, oh my God, that's his real grandma. Like that's <laughs> yeah. not just a stock line. Like, yeah, thanks grandma. And then she, I can't remember what she said, but she said she got a huge laugh. She goes, well, no Christmas for you then. <laughs> like we just yeah, passed right. Christmas. And she's like already like punishing me for next year. <laughs> Your family sounds so interesting. Sounds like a bunch of characters. You have two younger brothers as well. Yeah, one's an actor in Los Angeles. He's been in about a thousand commercials. Uh huh. Um, and did a documentary on Netflix about trying to make his penis bigger. The the unhung hero. Unhung correct? hero. Yeah. 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 Uh, he did that. Which, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's really funny. Uh huh. He's actually locked in a battle right now with the producers over residuals from all the Showtime airings and stuff. And he's been in just a ton of commercials. He's like, he's got that face where you're like, oh, I've seen that dude. Mm-hmm. Like in you know, like in Hot Pockets commercials or <laughs> he gets booked for the stoner role a lot because he's got a beard. He's, <laughs> he just got like that look. Right. And then my brother, my youngest brother, Killian, is uh, he works in anti-human trafficking policy. Jeez. So he works with, like the U.N. a little bit. He used to work with Hillary Clinton when she was secretary of state. Um, so he's kind of all over the country doing good work and then my other brother and i are just kind of professional idiots so the almost social service is almost a genetic thing because your dad was a, a civil rights yeah, attorney he, he as was well. a civil rights attorney when he was practicing law uh-huh. um and then yeah i mean I, that's kind of how i don't I, i'd say a lot of irish catholic families especially ones that have put a big emphasis on law and human justices and civil rights Maybe, maybe more so in the Northwest. I can't speak for all Irish Catholic families, but all of my family is all Irish Catholic. And there's a lot of lawyers, a lot of nurses, um, teachers. And there was always this emphasis on human rights and social justice and, uh, you know, helping, helping those less fortunate was kind of always a big thing. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, he's been doing that. He lives in Brooklyn and uh, kind of flies all over the country trying to do anti-human trafficking policy. He actually told the CEO of The Gap at this huge global forum that their supply chain was awful. (laughs) Wow. In front of like 500 executives that all work in like textile, clothing industries, anything that that uses a lot of labor Mm -hmm. because they, people, like his job is to dig one or more steps farther down the road than just the actual like like production plant. Mm -hmm. So let's say like The Gap, their clothing facility in Thailand or whatever. They're like, oh, this one's great, but your material is coming from Cambodia and they're using eight-year-olds. So yeah, terrible. you got to find a new, if you want to claim that you are this company that's that's respectful of human rights, you got to 
take it upon yourself to dig farther or I'll just tell you you're bad. You know, like mm-hmm. it doesn't take much there. He worked with an organization that would track uh, human slavery, sex slavery, and they would do like sting operations and free people. Like, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, <laughs> wow. like, yeah. And he lived in San Francisco for a long time and that was where they were. They just stake out places and like mm-hmm. send in, you know, there was the police. But I think like in the ones in uh, Vietnam and Cambodia, it was like this kind of guerrilla operation just to like bust, bust places open. Yeah. So pretty crazy. And your dad is a civil rights attorney. So do they ever like team up? No, no, because my dad, I mean, this is kind of like where I guess my family gets more interesting, but also weird is my dad ended up going to prison when I was 25 Wow, for white collar uh, bad with business, bankrupted his trust, using money in the wrong places for his law firm. It's pretty sad. Like he, he was, he knew he was breaking the law, but he was trying to do it to help people who couldn't pay their, their legal fees. And then mm. banking on winning cases and putting all that money back. Um, but that's all illegal. So he ended up doing five years in prison. So, and that was right when my brother Killian started doing all the legal human rights stuff. So it was kind of like, interesting. he went to prison, which I'll tell you this, if you are bored with your parents and they have no good stories, send them to prison in their sixties <laughs> because they will come out of prison with some hilarious stories. Oh, is there a favorite one? Um, yeah, he's got a, well, my favorite one of his is he, um, well, this is, I have, I have one that is involves both of us, which is my favorite. Um, and he ended up living with me in Seattle when I was doing my radio show. Uh-huh. He was like, he got released on home detention because I mean, he's a 64 year old man who is no threat to anybody and did really well in prison. And like he actually, when he was in prison, developed a resume writing class for inmates and worked in like educating and stuff like that. Jeez. He did a lot of good stuff in prison and he's doing a lot of good stuff now um, with prison reform. So I'm proud of him for that. But we had some hilarious moments. He, he was in Oregon uh, at a prison in Oregon at a work camp and he calls me up. I'm just about to do a comedy central audition at the Ontario improv, just like, going to walk on stage in literally four minutes. And I get an unknown phone call, which is t- two people, either a bill collector for my student loans. I'm not paying on <laughs> or, or my dad in prison. There's only two people that call me on an unknown number. And I almost canceled it because I was like, man, I'm literally going on stage on this big audition for this uh, Comedy Central, all, all their shows. And I was like, you know what? I better answer this. I answer it. It's my dad. And he goes, Brian, I just want to call you real quick. Um, you're probably doing comedy. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing I'm about to do an audition for Comedy Central. I was like, OK, cool. That's great. Hope you do great on that. Uh, I just want to call and tell you that I think your mom pissed off the warden here in Oregon And so they're transferring me and I don't know where it's going to be and I don't know how long it's going to take. So if you don't hear from me for a long time, just tell your mom that I'm being transferred and I won't know anything until I get to some prison that I'm going to be at for a while. Okay, good luck, buddy. I got to (laughs) go. And he just hangs up. (laughs) And so, and then I'm literally two seconds later, I go on stage. My dad's like, I don't know where I'm going to go panicking about like, and I get on stage uh, and I don't, I mean, I didn't book anything out of it. So clearly didn't go great. I'm uh-huh. not going to blame it on the phone call, but I kind of <laughs> am. Uh, so then I call my mom and I'm like, because when, when someone gets prison transferred, they don't tell you where you're going. They tell you nothing because they don't want any sort of like Con Air type shenanigans. So they put they put you on a bus, like they shackle them to uh, some other inmates. They put them on a bus. Then they go to another prison, pick up a bunch of people. So now he's like shackled to like murderers and stuff. And like their, their, their hands are cuffed inside steel boxes. 
and no one can go to the bathroom, no nothing. Like you just have to sit there until you get to your next prison. Then they take you out there and they process you and you got to go through the whole check-in process again. And then they put you in a cell, probably with somebody who's like medium, medium security, generally not max, but I mean, my dad was low threat. So he was with like guys that are in for like um, on the back half of like a murder sentence who just aren't like deemed dangerous. So I call my mom and I'm like, whoa, where, like, dad is getting transferred to another prison and he says it's because you pissed off the warden. Like, how did you piss off the warden? And she's like, well, I called him up. I was like, what did you call him up for? And she's like, I called him up because their healthcare in that prison is awful and your dad needs different medications for his, uh, like, hypertension and restless legs and all this circulatory stuff. Yeah. She's like, he needs better medication and they're not giving it to him. And so I called up the warden. I'm like, how did you find the warden's phone number and she goes i googled it (laughs) she googled this warden's name and like apparently this dude like his wife had a linkedin page that had their phone number listed so my mom like internet sleuth tracks down this Mm -hmm. number and just calls this guy at his house and just and just reams him and then the next day my dad's transferred he's like oh you don't like our health care watch this and then they just send him but the worry is that sometimes like they can really mess with you they call it diesel therapy uh, that's like what it's known as to the inmates. And what they mean is like, if you're a problem in this prison, they'll just say, all right, we'll transfer you. Because when you're being transferred, it's kind of like whatever goes, goes. They don't, they don't have enough money or time to figure out who you are. They treat you all like you're going to murder somebody. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Marshals don't have time to like look at your file. They don't even know who you are. It's not their job to know who you are. So then we don't know when we're going to hear from him. We hear from him like two weeks later. We thought he'd be in Oakland, like, like you know, he, we knew he was going to head south because he's going to go to a minimum security, ideally in California. Mm-hmm. We figured that's where he'd end up. Um, he called, he's in Oakland. I'm up there for the San Francisco comedy competition. We're in the semifinal round. And my mom's like, hey, he can take visitors now in Oakland. They finally, they wait two weeks and then you can see visitors, right? So I'm like, okay, well, I have, during the days, I'm free in this comp- in this uh, comedy competition. So I Googled Dublin Federal Correctional Facility, which has a Yelp review of one star, which is hilarious. <laughs> Someone would even go on and review a prison. Like, like, like what's a five-star prison? Not a prison. Exactly. Uh, so I go out to, I go out to o- uh, Oakland, and I like, go through the check-in process, which at this one, this is a medium security, so it was way crazier. Like barbed wire fences everywhere, and like the eh, buzzer doors. The real and, deal. Right. I walk into the waiting room, and my dad's like, but I was like, how's it going? And I'm like, great. He goes like, shut up for a second. I got to tell you something before I forget. He goes, I need you when you come back next week. I need you to give me the name of a private investigator in Portland, Oregon. I'm like, why? And he goes, well, because I sat at the wrong table when I got here. And a bunch of Latino guys got pissed off because I sat at the wrong table. And one of them was like up in my face and then the white supremacist gang called the Brood, what? they stepped in and like they, they like talked the guy down. And I'm sitting there like my jaw's on the floor. Like, are you kidding me? Like, this is like an episode of Lock Up Raw. Are you just kidding me? Yeah. He's like, no. He's like, they were pretty seriously mad at me. Um, so, and I told him I didn't mean to do anything. I'm like, yeah, of course. You're, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but the Brood stepped in for me. And he's like, they told me the story. It sounds a little fishy. So I need, and, and I need you to get a private investigator's name for me because... Um, they need to have somebody investigate because one of their guys is in for life and he shouldn't be, and they're going to try to appeal his case. Oh my gosh. So I'm like, wow. So <laughs> that was fast. Like, yeah. Like this guy, my dad's afraid he's going to get killed. So then I end up leaving 
And I go like that week, I'm looking at private investigators and stuff. Meanwhile, my life, this girl that I was in love with dumps me because she doesn't want to be dating a comedian that's on the road. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm like heartbroken and crushed. And I'm like looking up, <laughs> looking up like private investigators. So my dad doesn't get killed. I go back, <laughs> I go back the first day I can go visit and I show up at the prison and they're in lockdown. Prison's in lockdown. And I go, hey, what's going on to the guard? And she's like, she's like, we're on lockdown. You need to leave the premises. I'm like, yeah, but why are you in lockdown? She's like, she's like, somebody got stabbed. And I was like, no, oh. who got stabbed? <laughs> I was like, who got stabbed? And she's like, she's like, I can't tell you who got stabbed. And I'm like, but my dad's in there. How do I know if he didn't get stabbed? She's like, try to come back and visit him tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, if you can see him, he didn't get stabbed. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, you have no compassion for me right now. Mm-hmm. So I come back the next day. He didn't get stabbed. Right. I walk into the visiting room. He comes like shuffling over to me and he just like he has this moment where he looks at me and he goes like, hey, Brian, what's wrong? Because I had like this look. I was like sad about this girl. And he goes, what's wrong? And I go, ha, man. I was like, Alyssa broke up with me. And he's like, no, really? He's like, you guys were so perfect. You like it seemed like it was so great. I was like, it was so great, man. It was awesome. He's like, yeah, didn't you like cancel shows to go on a family trip with her? I was like, yeah. And he goes, you canceled shows to go on a trip. Like my dad's like impressed. Right. And, uh, and he's like, and my dad uh, reaches over, puts his hand on my shoulder and he's like, like we're having this serious father son moment in this prison visiting room. <laughs> and he's like, puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, listen, bud, it's going to be okay, man. Like, it's, you're, I know it seems tough now. I know I can see it on your face. Like, you're heartbroken. I know you're sad. He's like, I can, I, I can see it, but I got to tell you, man, you're a good guy. Just hang in there. Everything is going to be okay. We, like, have this moment and stuff. And then he goes, now, did you get the name of that private investigator? Because I'm going to need that. I was like, oh, my God. Here I am, like, about to cry and stuff. My dad's getting all yeah. emotional. All these yeah. inmates are staring at us. And I'm the one, like, I'm concerned about my own life when he's in here, like, all week long. Like, get that stupid name exactly. to me so I don't get stabbed by the Latinos. We were about some girl. And did yeah. you remember the name? Of what? Did you remember the name of the investigator? No, I can't remember his name. It was Paul something. Oh, I didn't know in that moment if you had Oh, the I name. did. Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay. I don't know, but it was Paul something. Yeah, I was going to say, him. if all I that, had, and then you still forgot it. I had three. I was I had okay. three guys that I had called that week and oh been like, hey, if, uh, if I send someone your way, they're like, oh, sure. They're like, we get these all the time. He's like, probably nothing happened, but. Jeez, man. A yeah. long way from Wigby. Yeah, Wigby Island. Or Wigby Island. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thanks, thanks for doing this. Yeah, um, definitely. I know you're a busy man and all that jazz, so I'm glad you got to sit down with me. Yeah, it's fun. Take time to do this. Definitely. Yeah. And it's good to hear um, the story of Brian Moot and yeah. what you're doing, because we see around the scene and everything, but it's good to know there's, there's a cool backstory. It's, it's what's fun about, I don't know, I, I do love the Atlanta comedy scene. I think it's great. There's a lot of uh, really talented comics and a lot of rooms and a lot of diversity. I think that I wouldn't like this city if I didn't like the comics and the comedy scene mm-hmm. with, because I, I just would go crazy. Like there's certain towns I, I just don't think I'd ever survive doing radio in uh, because I just, even if they have rooms, like sometimes the comics are just a-holes. How does this scene compare? I mean, you've performed in pretty much all the scenes mm-hmm. and lived, especially like, like I said, Boston, Seattle is a great yeah. scene. You've been in LA, but like, how does this scene you think compare to those? Um, this one reminds me, um, it's got, what I like about the Atlanta scene is I don't, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see a lot of like clicky animosity. Mm. Like I don't see, uh, you know, I've been in some scenes where like the alt comics have their 
that's Seattle. The alt comics have their like rooms and their scene. And then the club comics have their rooms and their scenes. And only a few comics can go back and forth. Gotcha. Like, who, you know, who are either good enough to do both rooms or just don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, Boston's a lot like that too, or Boston's a lot like Atlanta in the sense that like you'd see the weirdest hipster dude and like a guy who looks like he bench presses 800 pounds, both comics, both play the same exact rooms, both hang out and play softball on Sundays and do like, you know, any comedy function. Um, and so I think like when I did, like you see that in the laughing skull festival a lot too, is that you got comics that look like they're club comics who are playing relapse or the laughing skull and then at the punchline. And then I just don't in like the green rooms and stuff. I've never seen, it just seems like you got so, so much diversity, especially down here. You have a lot more black comics than, than most, most scenes do. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like there's anybody clicked up and like, I don't hear a lot of people talking shit about each other or their acts. I mean, maybe that happens. I'm sure it happens a little bit in every scene, but, but um, you haven't really noticed it here is no, not at all. While widespread as other ones. Yeah. And I think that like the laughing skull itself, like those best of shows, um, uh, you'll see such diversity in the lineup mm-hmm. that I think that that kind of like um, that culture just kind of lends itself to people just being just comics and realizing that it doesn't matter. Like, you know, you look different. Everyone's got an act of like a persona on stage, a look. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't all kick it in the green room and eat tater tots. Right. Yeah. <laughs> tater tots together <laughs> in the laughing skull green room brings yeah. everyone together. Well, what is your overall goal, I guess, to to kind of wrap it up here? I mean, you haven't been in radio that long, mm-hmm. but you used to do auditions a lot and stuff. What is like, what's your long term here? Uh, my long term is just to add, uh, I've always been someone who's, my show business mentality has been like, have a lot of things going mm-hmm. because you never know when one's going to get completely yanked out from underneath you. Um, whether it be stand up, radio, TV shows, like, you work so hard to book something and then it gets canceled. Or, you know, I wrote a pilot or I've written a couple pilot scripts. I like writing. And I, I met with Craig Ferguson like three times. They, I was pretty much sure they were going to sell it to somebody, their production company. Mm-hmm. They told me to put together my network, like dream list, like who I wanted to pitch to first. And then they called me and they're like, ah, we can't find a showrunner for the show. I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, showrunner, you guys are stupid. I'll walk that thing over, man. I don't care. I'll get on a bike. You need to take it. Showrunner, you need a delivery service? I'll take an Uber. I don't care. Uh-huh. I didn't realize a showrunner is like producer, like the person who's going to like bring the show to the network and be like, this is my, I'm producing this show. Okay. Like I'm pitching this to you. So you have so many things that could happen, but you never know when things are going to take off. So my ultimate goal is I always like, love radio. I think it's such a fun thing to do. Uh, such a different medium connecting with people in the car, on their drives, trying to take them out of that awful headspace they're in on their way to a job they don't like. Um, I still love TV. I'm going to keep auditioning for things when they come up. Um, and then in terms of stand-up, like my next goal is uh, try, working way more diligently, which I haven't done in the last two years, at getting putting together like the half hour submission I would want with comedy central or, you know, some of the other outlets, whether it be Netflix, CISO, Mm -hmm. um, newer ones. But that's the thing that I think the balance is difficult when it comes to life, comedy, radio, and that is forcing yourself to put effort into your act, into tightening it up, making it TV ready. Um, because it's so easy to just wing it on stage, which I do a lot but it's, it's lazy. So you really have to focus on, you know, 
not throwing away those opportunities where there's a good show that you can get a good tape out of um, because you're going to need those tapes at mm-hmm. some point in time. So that's been the most difficult thing. And that's where I'm at right now is like sitting down, making sure that I'm like not being lazy about the writing process with stand up and not finding a way to balance all of those things, which is difficult, but it's going to stay difficult. You know, your ultimate goal is like to be, if, if you're a comic and you want to be successful and famous, like Kevin Hart, I mean, that dude, when he travels has an entourage that takes notes for him and yeah. between shows, he, he's yeah. going over uh, transcripts of what he said in the first show, what he didn't like, what he's going to change. Um, but it's that type of mentality where you're always going to be tired. You're always going to be busy. So you just have to stop getting in your own way and making excuses and just be like, okay, well, this is what I have to do. I have to like, I have to go to the laughing skull tonight and not just wing it, but like literally look at a piece of paper and say, these are the jokes I want to put in this order Mm -hmm. and see how it feels and see how it looks and send it to, but if you don't do those things and put yourself out there, you're never going to book those, those shows anyway. So, and how long you been doing comedy? About 11 years now. About 11 years. Okay, yeah. cool. So it's cool to hear, it's cool to hear that wisdom and like, you're just as hungry as even yeah. somebody just starting out. So that's great. It's, it's a different mindset when you go from like, you know, goofy hang around the club, starving artist comic, which, you know, everyone, and those are great years, man. Those are the best. Like having so much fun, just the nights where you just sit around at the club until 2.30 in the morning on a Wednesday, just drinking and because you don't, maybe you have a job the next day, but it's a job you hate and it's whatever. When you go from that mindset to like, okay, I need to better myself. I need to take auditioning classes. I need to get new headshots. I need to get my website going. You have that show business checklist that, to be honest, if you don't stay on it, no one's gonna, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's not you, it's gonna be nobody. And you know, a lot of the people in the business, like if you look successful on all of your platforms, like that's all, that's kind of a contagious energy where people are like, well, look at this person. They're doing all this stuff right here. They got their act all organized. So that transition I think happens about like year four or five. Once you start, once you start going, I don't want to do that job. I hate anymore. Mm-hmm. I want to do this job I like, but it's going to take a lot of work to get to a point where I can financially make that happen. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Mr. Oh, of course, Root. man. Thank you. Uh, before we get out of here, is there anything else you want the world to know? No, not really. Um, cool. No, <laughs> I think we covered most of it. It was great. Yeah. Just let them know where they can keep up with all oh, these yeah. platforms you mentioned. Um, my Twitter is at Moot Points because I was kind of forced to take that. The name <laughs> Moot. Uh, and uh, then Moot Comedy on Facebook um, and uh, Instagram and YouTube and all that stuff. So, Or just look up my name, Brian Moot. Um, I think I'm dominating that in the Google world right now. Like, I, like I'm like a Highlander in that regard. There can be only one on, online. <laughs> well, Brian Moot, thanks for being on Hot Breath. Definitely. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Nice job. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, man. What time is it right now? Um, that was fun, man. That, that breeze. Oh, good. I like that you come prepared. That's not what a lot of people would do. Oh, I had to come prepared for this one, as Brian is definitely a name you will be hearing for many years to come. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today, all my hot brethren and sistren. If you like this episode, please support the podcast. Just leave an iTunes review. I spend hours on these episodes. You've taken a couple minutes out of your day. Just to click five stars on the iTunes review really does help out in getting exposure. The listeners, you continue to build each week has more and more listeners. I could not be more excited for the progression of this less than 100 episodes into this podcast. 
So big ups to all of y'all for sharing and supporting and giving me feedback when you see me in person. It really does make me feel good and inspires me to keep pressing. So uh, if you want to keep pressing and supporting me, go to my website, joelbyerscomedy.com. Uh, I teach a comedy class. I'm also, I do uh, like comedy tutoring sessions as well. If you're looking to just punch a couple things up, I'm definitely down to help you out with that. So just hit me up on social media at Joel Byers Comedy or joelbyerscomedy.com has links to everything. Like, you know, whatever. That was, I, uh, there was a glitch right there. I think must have had a sonic boom come by or whatever. It's the metal plate in my head that's uh, not there. It really messed me up. It's really just my ADD. But most of the listeners have tuned out by now, so the ones listening this far into the outro, you know the deal with the outro. You know, this is just fun, giving you fun information. You know, I got to shout out Comedy Artwork. He's done all my logos. If you want your logos professionally done at a dope deal, Hit up ComedyArtwork.com or at ComedyArtwork on all social media. You know what design it is. <laughs> and if you like, um, turn it up. Keep supporting Hot Breath. Get out there. Challenge yourself. I'm going to keep doing the same. Got a, some cool things coming up. So definitely keep supporting. I've been getting great feedback in person and on social media about the most recent episodes. You guys have really been enjoying it. I've been trying to push myself from an interview standpoint. So I'm only going to try to get better at this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to my engineer, Amon Garner. You know, he's been with me for since pretty much the beginning now, making sure all these episodes are sounding good. Hit him up on Facebook at Amon Garner. You want anything done audio wise or engineer wise? And of course, gotta thank my fiance, the theme song composer herself, at Aaron A. Rogers on all social media. Boom. We made it. And we have made it to the end of this outro. So, ah, go ahead and exhale that hot breath. <sighs> Until next Monday. Right here on Hot Bread. <sighs> <sighs>